Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. God has created our earth in such a way that it is something like a refuge from the harsh radiation of space. We have this atmosphere and magnetic field that protects us from the sun. That makes space exploration inherently dangerous, and yet NASA has this mission to do that very thing. So NASA is always trying to find ways to mitigate that vulnerability. I read a story this week about Scott Kelly, who is one of our astronauts who spent 11 months on the International Space Station, 11 months in that radiation in space. And every day of those 11 months, he received radiation equivalent to 10 chest x-rays. And they found that that radiation has damaged his DNA and his immune system in such a way that now he is now at a much higher risk for cancer than he would have been had he stayed on the earth. That vulnerability to radiation in space, it, it isn't news to us. We've, we've known this ever since the beginning of space exploration. It's just that even with all of our technology, we have not fixed the problem. And the concern for NASA is that with our aspirations to go to Mars, that vulnerability would be even greater because we would be going completely outside the Earth's magnetic field. The, 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 the radiation would be even greater and the exposure would be even longer. And so that vulnerability would be exponentially worse. Vulnerability. Every mission calls for it. Every mission calls for it. Ours is no different in the church. While we don't run the risk of growing a third arm, we do run the risk of, of being hurt if we're faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just being faithful to build the house, which is, which is our mission. And by that we mean sharing the gospel with the lost and ministering the gospel to the saved, living a lifestyle that commends the gospel. For some of us in this room, that has resulted in our being ostracized by family members. We've been shunned by lifelong friends. Some of us fear reprisal professionally. There's vulnerability that's inherent in our mission as builders of the house of God. And we, we've seen this since we've been studying 1 Peter, beginning last year, where the apostle called us to submit to even ungodly governmental authorities. Submit to those governmental authorities, just be faithful to the gospel. And submit to that ungodly master, just be faithful to the gospel. Submit to that ungodly husband, just be faithful to the gospel. Bear up under ridicule and pressure of the world, that world that hates your lifestyle and message. Just be faithful to the gospel with your life and your words. And the reason that these messages come to us in the word is because the temptation for us when we're faced with this pain and injustice is to pull back from the mission. We don't want the pain. 
right? We're afraid of the danger. We pull back in the form of not speaking the name of Christ. We, we, we pull back in the form of not being so conspicuously gospel-centered in our living. It's just safer. As human beings, we are bent toward self-preservation. We have an aversion to vulnerability. And we find this throughout the Psalms, this aversion to vulnerability, this fear of pain. I think of Psalm 3. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? How many are, are gathered around me? How many are saying of my soul? There is no salvation for him in God. We, we just want, we, we, we want justice and we want a refuge. And in the two visions that we are going to study in, in the Lord's word this morning in Zechariah, we find encouragement from the Lord to continue the work of building the house based upon the promise of such justice and refuge. For the sake of time, I'm going to ask you to stand now, and we're only going to read one verse of our text this morning, and that is the very last verse of the text, which is Zechariah 2.13. Zechariah 2.13. At the conclusion of these two visions, Zechariah writes this, chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning as vulnerable people. We are vulnerable as as just human beings living in the world that you've created, and we are vulnerable additionally as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that the, the encouragement that you've inspired in our text before us this morning, that it would have its intended effect in us, and that is that we would be encouraged not to pull back from the mission, but to press into it, believing the promises that you've put in front of us, and that is that you're a just God, you're a God of refuge, that we can trust you as we build. We pray that you would do these things in us. We ask for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So our, our first word of encouragement this morning comes in the second vision of, of this book. And that word of encouragement is that the Lord brings judgment upon those who judge his people. The Lord brings judgment upon those who judge his people. We feel vulnerable to the world, and in a great sense we are, but the Lord promises judgment. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. 118. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns... I said to the angel who, who talked with me, what are these? And he said, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? 
He said, these are the, the, the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The first of all, Zechariah sees four horns and he asks what they are. And he's told that these, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Verse 21 later in the passage indicates that these horns represent the nations that were used by God to bring judgment upon the Jews as a measure of his anger against them for their rebellion. The horn of a, of a ram or other animal was a symbol of its strength or aggression or, or pride. And so these are the prideful, aggressive nations who, according to 115 that we looked at last week, were used by God to judge Israel, but they went overboard. They did, they did more than God desired. And so his disposition toward these nations now is one of anger. And so he, he's not only noticed the, the, the plight of his people at the hands of these nations and what they've done, but he intends to do something about it, which is depicted by the next part of the vision. The Lord shows Zechariah four craftsmen representing those who have come to terrify and cast down the four horns. One, one commentator notes that craftsmen could be, they could be carpenters, they could be stonemasons, metal, metal workers, any number of, of artisans. The point isn't their skill, but as the text indicates, it's their power to tear down. They terrify and cast down the horns raised up by God for his work. So, just as the Lord told the people in Jeremiah and elsewhere that he would bring judgment upon his people in the form of invaders from the north, so also in Jeremiah and elsewhere, he promised to judge those same invaders. You can read about that in Jeremiah 25 if you're taking notes. Both a promise to bring invaders from the north and a promise to judge those invaders from the north. And we know from history that that actually happened. God brought a string of Gentile nations along to judge the other nations. Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians, and they fell to the Greeks, and they fell to the Romans, which took us to the church age, the church which is the fullest recipient of, of the hope of this text. There are a couple of senses in which we might understand God bringing judgment upon those who oppose the church. And the first of those is that God, God has throughout the history of the church raised up those within the church who have been successful in casting down the opposition to the church's work. We can go back to the very beginning of, of church history and, and think about the Arians. The Arians were a, a group of folks who attacked the deity of Christ in the third and fourth century. You can think about how vulnerable the church would have been had, had it succumbed to that horrible, that horrible error. Not just error, but heresy that Christ was less than God. And so what did God do? He, he raised up a craftsman in the person of Athanasius. Now, Athanasius was, in a sense, very vulnerable. He was, he was abused. He was persecuted. He was banished numerous times, but he continued to defend the truth. And we might think of him as a craftsman in the sense that he's got a hammer in his hand. And what is that hammer? It's the word of God that has dulled many anvils over the centuries. And he beat back that horn. But now, Arianism is not a thing. 
orthodoxy won the day. You go forward in church history and we find that next it was, it was Pelagius and his followers. And their heresy against whom God raised up Augustine. We can find this happening over and over again. We can even find it in, in the last, late in the last century as, as there were those who believed in open theism. Those who, who would say that God, God has grand intentions for us, but he just, he just doesn't know the future. And it's a terrible thing that has horrible implications for our view of God and, and even our salvation. But God raised up craftsmen to put down that horrible error. There has never been a time in which God has not raised up people within his church equal to the task of casting down those who would scatter the people of God. A second, a second kind of judgment is obviously the final judgment. And this vision depicts the final judgment wherein God will finally terrify those who come against the people of God. We find it depicted also in Revelation 20 as the devil and those who follow him are cast into the lake of fire. Paul assures those who he's writing to in 2 Thessalonians 1 that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict the church. So both of those kinds of justice, both, both temporal justice in the form of God raising up craftsmen within the church to put down opposition, and final justice, both of those should be a comfort to those who love the gospel and want to see God's church built. Those of us who find ourselves feeling as if we are vulnerable in this age, we should find comfort knowing that God's a God of justice. He is not going to allow his mission to be thwarted by those who stand against it. Now, there's a, a third vision that we come to in, in chapter 2. God brings another word of encouragement there. It's the second point in your notes. The Lord ensures a glorious city of refuge. The Lord ensures a glorious city of refuge. Look with me, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. So again, we see Zechariah seeing something, asking a question about what he sees, and then he receives an answer, and that answer then becomes the platform for more dialogue. Now, a man is going to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and, and length. And then one angel says to another, essentially, look, guy, there's no point in measuring this city. Jerusalem is unmeasurable. It will be unmeasurable. It's going to be inhabited as villages Without walls, there will be so many people. It's going to be enormous. Now, on the one hand, this would have been a, a, just great news to the people of Judah who felt as if they were being held down by the Persians. Of course, ultimately, this is a picture of, of the growing church extending to the uttermost parts of the globe. If you look at verse 3, that phrase, the angel who talked with me, angel who talked with me is told by 
the other angel, go and say that to this young man. Now, I made the case last week that this angel that is talking with Zechariah, this angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of us may not be, may not be willing to go that far. I would say that we should at least be willing to agree that this angel says things very similar to what we find Jesus saying in the New Testament. And here I would say we might find parallels between what is said here and things like Acts chapter 1 verse 8. If you're taking notes, you might write that down. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where the risen Christ says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, my people are no longer going to be located just here, but we're going to spread this thing everywhere. When Jesus said that in Acts 1.8, he was in a sense laying out the outline for the book of Acts, and he was predicting the future of his church. The gospel spread from Jerusalem to all Judea, to Samaria, and to the world, and the last 2,000 years have seen that proliferation continue. So we, we worship every Sunday in a literal church building with literal walls, but the church, the body of Christ, the global body of Christ, is not bound, brothers and sisters. I mean, it exists all over the planet, and the message of Acts is that it cannot be bound. How encouraging is that? As we feel vulnerable as a people of God, vulnerable in our building the church, feels as if we're even losing ground at times. Listen, the, the church is an utterly unique city, as it were. It has infiltrated every continent on the planet. Its influence extends to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Other cities, states, countries, they all have walls and borders. The church has none. Now, on the other hand, Zechariah and his contemporaries may have heard this, this idea of a city without walls, and they may have been a bit concerned by this. Maybe encouraged on the one hand by this expanding prosperity, but then also concerned because walls were important to a city. Proverbs 25, 28 assumes the importance of walls when it reads, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You don't want to be without walls. Got no walls means it means that you are defenseless. Well, the church is left without walls only in the sense that it cannot be bound. It is not without walls in the sense that it's defenseless. Look at verse 5, Zechariah 2.5. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. Genghis Khan is supposed to have stated, it is, it is not the stoutness of the walls, but the spirit of the defenders that determines the strength of the city. In other words, Genghis Khan was not impressed by walls. He, he, he only was concerned about the people who were defending those walls. And that may be generally true, that, that, that the walls are only as strong as those guarding them. But I wonder how many times Genghis Khan faced walls composed of the wrath of the Almighty. Yahweh himself protects this city. Yahweh himself protects this city. 
Now, I've, I've just made the common association of fire with wrath. But it is also biblically appropriate to think of this wall of fire as a picture of God's fiercely jealous love for his people. If you're taking notes, you might write down Song of Songs chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. In that final chapter of the Song of Songs, we find the woman of the song saying to her husband, Love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of Yahweh. What, what a great picture that is. The love of God as a great wall of fire protecting his church. So, is this wall of fire around the people of God, is this a wall of wrath or is it a wall of love? We don't have to, we don't have to choose, do we? we? We don't have to choose. The book of Revelation depicts God bringing wrath upon his enemies out of love for his people. Now, what, what, what would it mean for, for God to be our protector, our refuge, our wall of fire during this age of, of oppression and persecution? What would it mean for, for him to not allow anything difficult or painful to come upon us? Does it mean that he, he does not allow us to die? Well, how, how could it mean that when Jesus says to those who would follow him, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, his instrument of torture and death, and follow me. So no, discipleship, it assumes pain and discomfort, persecution, and physical death. But those who belong to Jesus Christ, they, they have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. They were formerly enemies of God because of their sin, separated from Him eternally. But because of their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, His death for them on the cross, they have been saved from any ultimate harm. The Lord is a refuge for, for us in a far more profound and far-reaching sense than just that of physical protection. You know, the, the, the people and nations of this world, they can take our physical lives. If we, if we listen to our brother Paul speaking in Philippians 1, and if we, if we echo his heart, we should be okay with that. We should be okay with the nations of the world taking our lives. Why? Because... Paul knew something that we should embrace as well, and that is they can take our physical lives, but they can't take our life, which is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So complete is this refuge that the New Testament believer enjoys a kind of invincibility in Christ. We don't die physically until he says he, he decides when we die, and when we die, he has already died and been raised from the dead to earn the right to raise us from the dead to be with him forevermore. And he has guaranteed that that will happen. Believers thinking rightly about their condition in Christ, man, we should feel a sense of security unlike any security known to man on this planet. How encouraging is that? When the nations rage against us, and would say to us, you are so vulnerable to us as you submit to us and as you carry this, this, this unappealing message 
No, we, we have the greatest security imaginable. We are held in the hands of an omnipotent Christ, in the hands of an omnipotent Father, and they will not let us go. Not even death can separate us. But this little verse, verse 5, it's just overflowing with wonder. The Lord, the Lord is presented here, not just as a wall of fire, but He is the glory in our midst. The vision depicts the Lord as the glory in our midst. Look at the rest of verse 5. And I will be the glory in her midst. Now, likely, Zechariah and, and others familiar with the, the Old Testament prophets, they, they would have immediately thought of Ezekiel's prophecy and his depiction of, of the glory of God departing from the people. That was before the exile. But remember that Haggai wrote, in his second chapter, that the latter glory of this house will exceed the former. So, Zechariah is not teaching a mere return to the former state of the temple, but he's teaching something better. This is a glory that is going to be better than what departed from the people depicted in Ezekiel. I will be the glory in her midst. My mind is called to John 1.18. John 1.18, which reads, No one has ever seen God. But the only God, it's talking about the eternal Son, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What John means by that is that Jesus came and lived among us and made God's glory known to us. And that's why he uses the word earlier in that first chapter. That Jesus tabernacled among us. Or we might say he templed among us. He is the glory in our midst. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 points in the same direction. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And listen to this, and you have been filled in him. That's insane. Of course, Paul, Paul is speaking about our being joined to Christ. And by the gift of this risen Christ, the, the spirit, his spirit lives inside of us. He, he is the glory inside of us. Last week, we had occasion to read from, from Revelation 21. You know, there's a part of me that just thinks we should read from Revelation 21 every week. Just do it every week. So I'm giving you homework. Go home and read Revelation 21 and add Revelation 22 and, and see what those chapters say about the glory of God in our midst. We await the ultimate eternal glory of God in its fullness when Jesus returns. But by a, by a glorious gift of Christ in what, what Paul calls the down payment of the Holy Spirit, we enjoy the glory of God in our midst, in our hearts right now. We, we are never unprotected. We are never unprotected. He's the wall of fire around us. We are never alone. He is the glory in us. He is our refuge. Vulnerability, in a sense, in a sense, but not ultimately. 
And as a result of these things, these things that he says in verse 5, he's a wall around us. He's the glory in our midst. He's our refuge. What does he call us to do? He calls us to flee to Jerusalem. Look at verses 6 and 7. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Now, if we know Jeremiah well, the other prophets, this is a reversal of what's written in those prophets. All right, you might write down Jeremiah 4.6, Jeremiah 6.1. If you read those verses, what you'll find there is... And an exhortation or command to flee from Jerusalem because invaders are coming from the north and they're bringing destruction. But now, because the Lord has returned to Jerusalem in mercy, the message is exactly the opposite. Flee from the north and escape to Zion. Listen, many people today getting this exactly backward as they look at what appears to be the ultimate vulnerability of the church. They see the heat that's being brought upon the church by the world. Many, many even professing Christians are feeling that heat from the world, and they are fleeing from Christ. And we're seeing this in the form of, of folks watering down the gospel. We're shaving off the hard edges of the gospel so as to not receive the heat of the world. We're softening on biblical morality, waffling on the exclusivity of Christ. That is, that is we're, we're, we're kind of agreeing or, 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 or even softly agreeing to disagree with those who would say, no, there are other ways to the Father than Christ. Some people are just flatly walking away from the faith altogether. That is the last thing that a person should do in the face of the heat of the world. The only safe place to be eternally is in the refuge of union with Jesus Christ. And by definition, that puts you in the church. It is the message of the church, the gospel, the gospel that leads to salvation. People should flee to this city over which Christ is king. The, this body over which Christ is the head. This vision depicts the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, as a wall of fire around this city. He's the glory in her midst. And we might think of these things as, as these are defensive pictures. As we continue in the vision, we see, we see offensive action on the part of our glorious king as he is a plunderer of nations. It's in your notes. The Lord is depicted here as a plunderer of nations. Man, how vulnerable do you feel when your king is going out and plundering the nations? Look at verse 8. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, first of all, just very quickly, the original text is super difficult here, particularly in that second phrase. That there isn't widespread agreement about how to, how to translate the second clause in verse 8. After his glory sent me to the nations, my best guess and that of, of others is that the idea is that God sent his angel for the sake of his glory to the nations 
who plundered the people. So God is sending the angel of the Lord as an instrument of his judgment upon the nations who plundered the people for the sake of his glory. Why is he doing that? Because they are the apple of his eye. They're the apple of his eye. Now that's a phrase that we use occasionally. You are the apple of my eye. He is the apple of her eye. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. The, the apple of the eye is a reference to the pupil of the eye or, or the, the cornea. And my, my wife has an old family friend who was taking his contacts out one night. And he, he took the first one out and went to take the second one out. Just could not get this thing out. And he just tugged and tugged and rubbed and grabbed until his eye was just blood red could not get this thing out. So he made an appointment with the eye doctor the next day and told the doctor the problem. And the doctor looked in his eye and said, you don't have a contact in that eye. Now, that story always receives that reaction. Because it is our natural instinct to preserve our vision. God has made our eyes very sensitive for a reason so that we will preserve them and preserve our ability to see. So when God says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye, he means these foreign nations have touched something that it is my natural inclination to go to great lengths to protect, and he is going to react. And what we find here is that Christ, our refuge, protects us by plundering those who touch the apple of his eye. This entire section is one where I believe it is very difficult to hold that this is just an angel speaking and not the pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 9 is the angel speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Look there, verse 9. Behold, I'll shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Again in verse 9, the, the angel speaking both for the Lord and about the Lord in the third person. Yahweh is both the sender and the sent, because the I in the first sentence and the me of the second person, second sentence is the same person. Thus says Yahweh, I will shake my hand over them. Then you will know that Yahweh has sent me. Okay, there's more of this same kind of thing in verses 10 and 11. In my mind, the, the, the most biblical way to make sense of this is with a Trinitarian understanding that this is the Father sending the pre-incarnate Son as a judge upon his people's oppressors. And what does he do to them? He makes the nations themselves plunder. We talked about this when we, when we were... Studying Haggai, he, he, he shakes his hand over them, which is a picture of judgment. And in that act, he makes the nations plunder for his people. Ver verse 10 repeats a theme from earlier in this vision. Look there with me at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now, given how this angel speaks, of the Lord in the third person, and as the Lord in the first person, it's completely natural with our Trinitarian understanding to read this as the pre-incarnate Son saying, 
I come and will dwell in your midst. And if, and if you back up and look at the last sentence of verse 9, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. If, if, if you read that with, with an understanding of the whole Bible, if you're, if you're one of these folks that's kind of a walking concordance, you will just hear Jesus talking in the New Testament. Then you will know that he has sent me. You can write down John 8, 28, where Jesus says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has sent me. You can write down John 5, 35. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. There are multiple things to that effect just in the Gospel of John. And it sounds exactly like what this angel says here in Zechariah 2.10. With that understanding of Christ as the fulfillment of this voice, look at verse 11, Zechariah 2.11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Many nations will attach themselves to him and be his people. That, so the act of, of plundering the nations, where the people themselves become plunder, is both an act of judgment upon the wicked nations, and it's an act of salvation for the repentant among, among those nations. So Jesus takes some of, those, some of those Gentiles and makes them part of his city. That's a very effective way of taking care of opposition, isn't it? Hey, I, I'm going to free you from sin, and now you work for me. Now listen, write this down too. Write, write down Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. There Jesus describes himself as a plunderer of the devil's house. He is a plunderer of souls. It also makes me think of Colossians chapter 1. We've been removed from one house, the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus was a plunderer. He calls himself that in Matthew chapter 12. So much good news for Gentiles here. See, it's not just, it is not just the people of Judah who enjoy this omnipotent and loving wall of fire and the glory of Yahweh in our midst, but these believing Gentiles will be joined to the one people of God. And, and Jesus says, I will dwell in your midst. Verse 12, look at verse 12. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land. And will again choose Jerusalem. This is the best of news. The, the, the Bible demonstrates in those, those historical books of the Old Testament. Just the, the great importance of the inheritance of the land. And it does that in numerous ways. It gives, it gives many laws about the inheritance of the land and how that inheritance is passed down. It spends numerous chapters outlining the boundaries of those inheritances. And, and we think that, well, God just put that stuff in there to help us fall asleep at night. No, he's, he's saying, look, this is so important, this inheritance of the land. You've got to see how important it is for, for, for everyone to have this inheritance. This is crucial just prior to the exile, God said of the people, I'm disinheriting you. And based on all of that is said in, in the historical books, then you get a sense of the gravity of that. The people are God's inheritance. 
He's casting them aside. And yet in those same books, Hosea being one of them, he says, but I'm going to re-inherit you. And we find here God affirming that promise and saying this is going to happen. And we, we, Gentile believers, we are his inheritance precious to him. We're chosen by him again. He wants us. Paul writes to Gentile believers in Ephesians 1.11 that we have been obtained as an inheritance, having been predestined according to his will who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, to those of us discouraged in our, our, our vulnerability under the oppression of the nations, those of us who've been scorned by family members, those of us perhaps who have been, have been threatened at, at, at work with our livelihood, those of us wondering if, if the wicked among us will ever know justice, the Lord gives Zechariah this vision of a glorious city of refuge. The church with the Lord himself as a wall around her. His own presence as the glory in her midst. His sovereign power bringing judgment upon her persecutors and plundering those, those among her or around her to swell her numbers so that this city is one that no measuring line can span. There is no safer place to be than in Christ. And, and this is why I love verse 13. It, it serves like something like a jarring conclusion to this whole thing and a teaser line to the next vision. The next vision. Look at verse 13 again. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Be silent, be in awe, wait with bated breath, all flesh, before Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, judge and savior, for he has roused himself on your behalf, and he is about to act. What is he about to do? What's he about to do? He's about to do what's necessary to provide for all of the blessings that he's just depicted in these visions. He's about to provide for presence among his people, covenant protection of this city, his gathering all people into one and the redemption of them from sin. In other words, what he's about to do is depicted in the vision of Zechariah 3, which will be our focus next Sunday, Lord willing. He has roused himself for the incarnation to come to the earth, to live a perfect life on our behalf, to be sacrificed on the cross for the sins of sinners, to pay the penalty for their sins there, to die and be raised from the dead so that all Jew and Gentile who repent of their sin and trust in him will with him live in this city of refuge for all eternity. Pastor John began this, this service this morning by reading Psalm 46. And I would like to use it as a closing bookend. Psalm 46, I'm going to read it to you again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be encouraged as you continue to build church. Because you do so from a place of profoundest refuge. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we acknowledge to you this morning your continued lordship over our lives. And that we gladly continue under your mandate to build this church. Not a building, but the body of Christ. Here locally and globally in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And we recognize before you, Father, and confess to you the, the fear that rises up when we consider and experience the vulnerability that comes along with following you in these things. We thank you, Father, for these visions that encourage us that you are a God of justice and you're, you are a refuge for us. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take these things. Form our minds and hearts by them so that we will continue to build with great confidence and encouragement. Believing the truth. That though we may be hurt. Though we may even be killed. In this life, no one can take our life from us, which is Christ. We ask, Father, that we would find our ultimate joy, our ultimate joy in knowing him and making him known. We pray these things in his name. Amen.